with the motivation that no other patient should go through the same struggles he did. Our next guest has made it his mission to improve patient education and empower them to make confident and better informed decisions in kidney care and beyond. Tim Fitzpatrick, CEO of Icona Health, joins us to discuss how his company aims to provide quality value-based kidney care through storytelling, technology, and learning science while simultaneously tackling health literacy barriers that have plagued our communities for far too long. Join us to learn how we can provide better education and support for patients as we continue to work together to move the health of our nation forward. Let's go. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Tim, welcome to our podcast, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, Tim, given your passion to help tackle the uncertainties you once faced as a patient and how you are now helping others not to have to experience what you did, I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast today. But before we dive in and discuss your journey as a patient and startup founder, a bit of housekeeping, while listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Lastly, please visit the bottom of the episode notes to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Clubhouse in order to further the conversations occurring on this podcast. All right, Tim, it's almost time for our community to learn how Icona Health is using learning science, storytelling, and technology to address educational challenges, dramatically improve patient understanding, and ensure smarter, confident decisions in kidney care and beyond. But first, I'm going to randomly select an icebreaker question so we can get to know you, Tim. We're talking travel. We're starting to come out of the pandemic. We're starting to be able to travel a little bit more. Matter of fact, I just scheduled my first in-person business meeting. I can't believe it after, right. you know, yeah, there almost a year and a half. I know. So I'm going on the road. I like getting, I like scheduled the dinner. It was amazing. But what's your favorite place on earth and why? Okay. Hear me out because this goes against everything about your question, but I promise I have a good answer. So I'm in New York and my favorite place is New York, even though I also love to travel, but here's why. You mentioned the patient experience being a huge part of my why. And when I was in Florida, this is five, six, seven years ago now, I, at a certain point, knew that I was not going to forever be in Florida. And the place where most of my friends at that point in life had congregated was right here in New York. As I started to heal and during that 18-month process that I'm sure we'll get into, I would take trips up here whenever I could. So we're talking every six months, every eight months, definitely every New Year's Eve, not doing the crazy Times Square madness. But I'm just talking about hanging out with friends from school, from high school, some friends from the military. And it kind of became my launch pad. And the reason I still love it to this day and kind of my meter for how I know when it's time to move on, because I tend to move a lot. I've actually moved about 50 times in the last three years, which is a, a crazy number. But whenever I come back here, whether it's on a plane or a train or in a car, 
I kind of just measure my internal energy meter and see how I feel seeing the city again. And I love exploring, traveling. I'm always on planes. Love to get overseas whenever possible. But coming back is just a new source of energy. I know everyone talks about the energy of the city. I too love travel. I just booked my first trip. It's a wedding in Detroit. I have not been to Detroit. I'm really excited. Yeah, talking about my favorite place on earth, I'm in it. And a lot of times I find myself just unbelievably, indescribably beside myself excited to be here in the most basic, simple activities, just sitting on a bench, looking at a bridge. And that's good enough for me. It puts me in a great mental state and I'm ready for anything. So New York. When you say New York, are you talking New York City or are we talking? I'm talking the city. Yeah, You're talking me, the, the city. city. Upstate is wonderful. It's beautiful too. It's a good escape, but for me, it's the city down here in the heart of it. Did the city change quite a bit with the pandemic? Yes. Yeah, it really did. I first was hunkered in San Diego, my second favorite home away from home for Navy reasons. Uh, a lot of friends there too. Came back here after a few months last July, about a year ago, and have ridden it out since then. Yeah, it's changed a ton. There's a lot to be said about what happened. I think it hollowed out. It became what used to be 4th of July weekend and every summer weekend through Labor Day, it's a ghost town and it always has been that way every summer here. It was that way every day and it was pretty disheartening to see the empty storefronts and just not a great place. Obviously everyone just hunkered down and not doing much and trying to make sense of public spaces. In the last two months, especially with restrictions going in the right way and nearly 80% of the city vaccinated and people being responsible, it feels different than it ever has and in a very positive way. Obviously, still a long way to go. And it's nice to see friends returning. Some will not return. They ended up finding houses and settling down in the burbs, which is totally cool. Gives me a reason to go to Connecticut and to New Jersey. But you're right. It has changed quite a bit but it's still a great place to be. I believe that uh, cities, they're very elastic, right? They change, they're dynamic, they have a soul of their own. And things like pandemic are absolutely going to change the fabric of a city, but it's going to be interesting to see where the city goes into the future. That includes some of my other favorite places, like a San Francisco, just absolutely love that lived in the mm -hmm. Bay Area for a number of years. I've heard the same thing from friends, but we'll see where the rebirth goes. But if I had to bet on a city that's going to make a great comeback, it is New York City. There's no doubt about it. It's a wonderful place. So, Tim, thank you for sharing that. I know you've been all over the world and you've seen a lot, but there's sometimes there's just something about where you live. I couldn't agree more. I feel the same way about Denver and where I love live in the Denver. mountains. It's, oh, it's amazing. It's an oh, amazing, it's place. amazing city. place. Yeah, I love it here. So, well, thank you for sharing your love of New York City. And I'm looking forward to discussing your journey and mission with Icona Health after we get back from thanking our community champion sponsor. Located in Denver, Colorado's nationally ranked River North District, Catalyst is a healthcare innovation campus that brings together stakeholders from across the industry to accelerate innovation and drive real, lasting change our nation desperately needs. From established organizations to startups, from accelerators to advocacy organizations, and from medical schools to global companies, everyone at Catalyst works side by side to create, develop, refine, and bring to market cutting-edge innovations that will fundamentally transform healthcare as we know it. With industry leaders like Medical Group Management Association, Olive, Medical Solutions, UC Health, Cirrus MD, and many others calling Catalyst home, along with innovative pioneers visiting from across the nation, Catalyst continually fosters their foundational belief that collaboration and partnerships will move the healthcare industry forward. To virtually tour Catalyst and claim your space on campus, or host an upcoming event, 
visit CatalystHealthTech.com or visit the top of the episode notes and click on their link. All right, we are back with Tim Fitzpatrick, CEO of Icona Health. We have a lot to discuss today. Tim, thanks again for sharing your love of New York City, where you are building your startup. I know also, hey, you are one of those health transformers with an organization I'm a big fan of. Actually, I've had one of their founders on, founder of uh, Startup Health, Unity Stokes, fan of Steve Krein. I've had actually a lot of health transformers on the podcast. You're the next in line, an amazing community of unbelievable startup founders. And today we're going to be talking about your journey of what you're building with Icona Health. But there's a lot in there before we even talk about the company, because a lot of it has to deal with your own journey and what you've been through as a patient, what you've been through coming out on the other side of that and making sure that others don't go through and have gone through what you did. Let's talk about that. Let's dive in there, Tim, before we dive into the heart of the matter with what you've built with Icona Health. Give us a little bit of that backstory. Give us some of the reason why you turned this company on. And then we'll talk about current state where you're at, where the industry's heading, what we need to be thinking about. And then, of course, how we can be helping you. But first, let's hear a little bit of that founder's journey. Absolutely, Mike. And first note on Startup Health, one of the best decisions and communities we've ever joined to date. So I just want to say first shout out to what they've built going on uh, just past 10 years now. Fantastic community. And I've learned more from those founders and peers than I have in the last four years. So a lot to be said about those guys. Now, my personal journey started in 2013. I was in the middle of aviation training in the US Navy. This was my second warfare community training pipeline. I had started out going the Navy SEAL special warfare pipeline, ended up getting hurt in pursuing second warfare community, went to flight school in Florida in 2012 and went through flight school. I was learning to fly, doing all sorts of fun survival training, water survival training, and learned to fly engine systems, weather, learning to fly planes, going through the syllabus. And then I made it about a year and a half through the syllabus. So pretty decently far in getting close to picking my platform, my plane, my, what I was going to working on for the next 10 years. And I went to the doctor, kind of raised my hand, went to the flight dock, and I said, hey, I, I need to get checked out. I think I have something wrong with my back. And there's a lesson that every early naval aviator learns, and that is you shouldn't say there's anything wrong until you've made it a certain point. Because at a certain point, it's kind of like you make it through a checkpoint and you can't go back or you can't be kicked out. Usually that point is getting your wings, your wings of gold. And so I was going as fast as possible towards the wings of gold and delayed saying anything about my back. So sure enough, I say something, I'm probably six months away from it at this point. And it's supposed to be a basic fix. This, okay, this will require surgery, but it's an outpatient surgery. It shouldn't be too complicated. And this does happen to some aviators. It's a tissue disease around your spine from just the nature of the job, some pulling G-forces and sustained exposure and long hours of flying. So I go in for the surgery and come out of surgery and I'm in recovery and pretty basic. I had no support. I was by myself living off base, young officer. And so that was pretty normal, just kind of going about driving myself to the hospital every day and going through this initial care cycle treatment initial kind of painkillers. This will be short term. Nothing to see here. And after a week, typically you're back up in the and flying in the cockpit within a week. And after a week, I wasn't really making progress on my wound. 
Well, it was wound care. It was wound care at this point. It had been done. Now I went from surgery, surgical patient to outpatient wound care clinic treatments every day. And the team of Corman and my surgeon just couldn't seem to get it right, right? That wound care is one of those interesting specialties where it's not a perfect science. It's more of an art than a science. And there's a lot that goes into the patient and their diet and what else is going on and why isn't it looking healthy and healing. And it wasn't healing. And this went on, it was a week turned to two weeks, turned into a month. And, and obviously questions started to get asked from my command and why isn't Fitzpatrick back up and flying and what's going on and how are we accounting for his scheduling and his pipeline. You know, imagine how much money and time had been spent on me at this point. University degree, first warfare specialty, second warfare specialty, and flying planes. It's an expensive training pipeline. They wanted answers, but the medical team just didn't have an ace. After six months of daily wound care and no questions and more painkillers and figuring out why isn't this kid healing, they said, Sometimes this happens. It's rare, but sometimes we need to go back in. And we think that we just didn't get it all the first time. That was the, everyone kind of just agreed. We didn't get it all. It's one of those things where if you don't get it all, it continues to spread. It infects the tissue. It no longer is healthy tissue. It's not going to heal. So I went for the second surgery. At the time, there's this thing called a wound vac. And if you're not familiar, it's worth Googling just how painful it is. And you'll see the patient forums on, is this hell? Is this real life? And where's Dante? And it's just not a pleasant experience. It's very painful. It's meant to get your skin to stay fresh. And that's a nice way of saying painful and like a fresh wound all the time. And it requires changing the wound vac frequently. So you're in there, depending on the prescription, every three days, once a week, no more than once every 10 days to pull out the filter, which is a mesh, a metal mesh that goes into your skin. And they'll pull that out. And now at this point, the skin, if it's healing, is grown into the mesh. So it's really not a great experience. And then they're packaging it and repacking it and there's no painkillers. And now it ended up being second surgery. I had one installed immediately following surgery, months on that, still no healing, continuously replacing the wound back, needed a third surgery. Now, all this is happening. I'm driving myself to these appointments every morning. I don't know how it's possible. This is clearly an oversight. If I could snap my fingers and have Congress pass a bill that requires naval commands or any military command to look out for junior officers who don't have the same oversight as enlisted personnel who are on base. They have a ton of people looking at what they're doing. They're being kind of pushed through like the cogs in the wheel. Officers have a degree. They're a, bit, a lot more autonomous, but that comes with less safety guidelines, right? As you might imagine. So I wish there was some sort of check-in like, hey, how's this guy doing who we haven't seen in six months or a year who's by himself and driving himself and there's just no check-in. The interesting piece and the piece where I ran to the most difficulty, obviously the pain was unimaginable and indescribable and just the, the helplessness happens real quick <laughs> when that's all you know for day after day and you don't know what time of day it is. You lose track of meals and nothing really matters except darkness and pain, the whole nine yards. But the difficult part was that after a year, I knew that the regulations within the Navy said that you can no longer fly. You can't get, keep doing this because you're kind of, you were out of training and for so long, either we have to restart you, that's really expensive and that doesn't make much sense. We have to redesignate you to another warfare community at some point, but we can't do that either 
until you're healed. And so I was in this really uncomfortable reality of, hey, this future I've spent my whole life preparing for, a little boy, is definitely over, but there's no next and I can't heal and no one knows why. So that was a very difficult thing to grapple with. So getting through that phase from the one year mark where it's over, but, and I don't know what's next, if anything's next, you know, most people can be like, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel, at least I know what's next for me. There was just no, I, I was, the Navy was done and I knew I was gonna write a letter at some point to say, let me go, I know you own me. Technically I signed on the dotted line for 10 years, but I need out. And so I did write that letter after 18 months, I finally healed after my third surgery, went to an Air Force base, another base in Florida had a special procedure done, like a flap, which is a modified graft. And it all panned out. And the Department of Defense was kind enough to allow me to just get out. They said, you know, we've done enough. And I was lucky enough to have my health at that point. And so I made the transition out. I came to New York. And New York was my safety place. And I said, I have a community here. I have people here who look out for me. I have a really good friend who was able to introduce me to people at a bank where there was a team, a really high-performing, close-knit team of traders, so institutional equity traders who had been at Lehman Brothers and then became part of Barclays and then went to the Bank of Montreal. And so I was joining this storied trading team that had seen and done some of the most now infamous things in the business. Uh, but they were very good at their job and they were absolutely wonderful people. And I had a chance to be a part of that. So I said, I'm going to lose myself in this new world. I'm just erasing the last 24 years of my life, uh, 25 years, and I'm going to take some transferable skills, which were from aviation and all these wonderful things that I had picked up as going through these really rigorous training pipelines. And I applied it to this new craft. And one thing I love is just learning a completely new topic from zero, from scratch, just diving into something that people love, that is fascinating, that is complex, that involves adrenaline and teamwork. That is what I get excited about. So finance was that to me. And I just lost myself in it and spent two years doing it before the seeds of Icona started to really take root in my mind through a couple introductions that were made to me through mutual friends. But that transition from the Navy to finance was entirely a, where can I just plant myself and feel like I have somewhere to grow and take hold? And that that was here, that was in New York within this trading team who just took me under their wing as their first junior ever, I think, and said, we don't care if you have no background in finance. I studied languages and international relations and engineering. So Finance was not my cup of tea, but it became just a fascinating craft that I was able to get lost in. So that's kind of the very early days of the transition. And then it was meeting a couple of my ultimate co-founders who were neurosurgeons who had done really interesting work. And I'm sure we'll get into that, but they were the ones who opened my eyes to let me now transfer my knowledge from trading about technology and media equities, which was my focus. Let me now take that skill set and apply it to something that I will now forever be part of my DNA, which is the patient experience. Wow. That is so powerful, Tim. And thank you for sharing the real and authentic story behind it. I mean, that is just unbelievable journey. And I know we're going to 
get into it quite a bit here with where we're going with the conversation. There you are, two years, totally immersed in a whole new industry. How amazing in and of itself. Probably a little bit of healing in there as well, right? Be able to find rebirth, renewal, an opportunity to bring some value that because you probably felt like you were lost a bit in that experience that you were just mentioning about just trying to get healed again as a physical patient of the system. Get over that, get into trading and equities and being able to find that renewed self of opportunity and a little bit of entrepreneurialism and building new things. But then you mentioned there's some of the seeds were laid for the foundation of Icona in that experience. Here you are now, Icona Health been around for almost four and a half years. You guys have been at it for some time. Let's go there. Let's talk about it. How was the company birth? Give us that aha moment. How did it all come together? Because you know as well as I do, it's one thing to talk about it. It's a whole nother thing to jump off that entrepreneurial cliff, sometimes with no parachute on, right? <laughs> and just start hitting the go button and building. What happened there? What was that kind of push into the deep end of the pool to get the company Icona off the ground and to where you are today? Yeah, this is a fun one. And I'll tell you why. So growing up, I had a couple of really close friends who were neighbors down the street from me. We remain very close to this day, one of them for very good reason. A friend of mine, she became a nurse practitioner. We grew up from diapers together. She, at the time, 2015, was dating her boss, who is now my co-founder, right? So one of the attending neurosurgeons at Dartmouth was this gentleman who was a co-principal investigator, one of the co-leads on this fascinating randomized controlled trial about the use of virtual reality in patient education, perioperative patient education. So I was introduced to him through her. And so we were at a wedding for this other mutual friend and I meet this doctor and the doctor proceeds to tell me, his name's Kimon. He tells me about this exciting new thing he's working on, this study he's been doing with another friend of his, another neurosurgeon. And the idea is, hey, this tool called VR, we're going to use 360 video that is three-dimensional, 360-degree video captured and presented in a VR headset to show patients what to expect the day of surgery. Now, this resonated for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, very clearly, I could have used it when I was a patient, right? I would have been able to say, oh, that's what this is about. Reduce anxiety, improve overall experience, know what I'm up against when it's time to leave the hospital. All of these things that I just had no idea what I was in for because it was my first rodeo the first time. And then, hey, that was terrible the first time. Now my second one has even more increased my anxiety. And then the third, even more so. I meet Kimon. He tells me about this bit of research. And the other person, the other neurosurgeon who's involved in this research, his name is George. He, in a past life, was a film director. The head of a production company for virtual reality had gone to film school, was this kind of fascinating human who went to med school later in life after film school after going to Tisch, after going to the Fletcher School at Tufts, just decided to study public health and become a neurosurgeon. Just these two really incredible humans. He sounds really boring. (laughs) Oh my gosh. He's incredibly boring. No, dinners are some of the most exciting time I have in memory. The three of us end up having dinner and they're telling me about this research. And my mind is just blown because on the one hand, I'm like, hey, as a patient, this would have changed my life. On the other hand, I'm over here 
at the time in finance, kind of taking a look at how tech and media companies are investing in the public markets in these new technologies and seeing the writing on the wall. You know, I have a team of analysts whose job it is to have just complete nerd central rooms of devices and they're doing channel checks all day long and they're reporting to me on, hey, the stock, they're giving me information on devices. This is early days of VR. And we're looking at where all the big companies are investing in chipsets and the form factors and what's the Samsung roadmap look like and what does their memory look like in terms of augmented reality chips and their new handsets in the next generation. And we're just trying to decide how we should be investing in the public markets. And then I meet these guys who are kind of bridging the gap for me, right? I'm looking at their RCT and going, wait a second, there's a lot going on here. And yes, it's a very specific patient subset of neurosurgery patients, but the content they're talking about is general. Any patient could see this. And there's no reason why having some sort of patient education resource that taps into things that traditional learning media are just not tapping into. There's no reason that shouldn't exist in other forms and other places and other settings and challenges across healthcare. It just started as a project. It started as 2016, the two of them saying, hey, Tim, do you have any sense of what it would take to take this RCT and kind of a tech transfer model, commercialize it? What does idea to market look like for something like this? I didn't know. I didn't have a parachute, but I knew for certain, and I started talking to you know everyone I knew in my new network in New York, hey, how would I do this? What questions should I be asking? If this was going to happen, what should I know? <laughs> if I'm going to go all in, am I an idiot for wanting to do this? Because in my heart, I know I have to do this. This would be transformational to people who are in a situation that I was in or who might be in the future. It just took six months for us to start asking the questions to eventually get to a point where I said, okay, I don't know what Icon is going to look like. I know what our mission should look like, but the product is going to change. We need to find a way to do this. And I'm full-time. I'm in. I made the leap two years ago to something new. There's no reason I'm not the person to do this now. And it does change over time, right? And that's awesome to hear that you guys had that mindset like, hey, let's go and after the mission first, technology, product market fit, all that, you know, as well as I do, that can change and it can change quickly at times. But so current state, because that was about four and a half years ago, Tim, what is today's elevator pitch? What have you guys built today? What's in the marketplace today? Yeah, so today, Icona is a kidney education platform that's using the power of learning science and storytelling to tackle health literacy barriers for people with chronic diseases. And that's a big leap, right? There's a lot of words in there that were not in the initial pitch. And I'll tell you the biggest reason is we started with an RCT. And we used that RCT to go to health systems. And I was in, you know, say 20 health systems in the first 12 months, was able to get the big meetings with the right people because of my co-founders. And I was selling into health systems as a first time founder. I'm sure I don't have to tell you or anyone on this listening to this, how difficult that is. And that was the learning curve for me. And a few things changed, right? Obviously I realized, okay, this whole knowing your target customer thing seems important. Knowing who's going to pay for this and how they're going to pay for this seems important. All those lessons were fire hose, right? Let's just say first 12 months was an important wash. (laughs) Then about 18 months in, we get this really incredible opportunity to apply what we purported to do and wanted to do and aim to do 
in a very special near and dear area called kidney care and specifically working with patients on dialysis to understand their treatment options. And I know that anyone listening to this who has been following the space knows that three and a half years ago, hey, that's pretty good timing because that's before the Advancing American Kidney Health Act. There's a lot going on. There was plenty being done already in the space, but it was just great timing for us to be discovering how an immersive piece of education or an immersive modality of delivering patient education for this patient population who has a unique set of barriers around education. Not only that, not only the barrier side, but opportunities. If you get it right to deciding on treatment options, that is just a home run if you can get it right. So three and a half years ago, three years ago, we ended up doing some work there, seeing how a VR tool could affect and impact how patients understood and made decisions around their options. And then we realized, wait a second, there are so many challenges unique to kidney care where we can prove out this model and take this learning science. And I I know this, anything that tacks on science just seems like a pseudoscience. So I do want to unpack that for listeners soon, but we wanted to take our three-step approach and apply it in a very specific area that we knew would have the right macro catalysts. And it was becoming clearer and clearer over the ensuing months that this was the right place and the right time to be pursuing how to really dive into an education, a novel education solution in this space. And how have the results been currently? What are you guys seeing? How has it been? Things changed with the pandemic as well, right? I mean, we think about a lot of business models either came to life or were accelerated. How did the pandemic maybe impact you and the team and the technology you're bringing to the marketplace? But how have things been going? What have been some of the good results? I always also love to hear, Tim, some of those patient stories to the end user. Like, what has it done for some of these people that you're serving? Yeah, Mike, this, to be honest, you hear a lot of companies and people go on podcasts and they say either it was the best thing that's ever happened or it's the worst thing that ever happened. It's, it's usually a mix. For us, it's both of those things. Number one, the business was completely turned on its head and we had to do a very hard conversation. Let's talk about the messy middle, but we had to do a zoom out pivot. So we had VR and we had built this ingenious approach of a three-step learning process of identifying our learning task and then identifying the part of the brain where that particular learning task was going to be targeted by the patient's brain or the user's brain, and then figuring out which tool was the right fit. That was all encompassed in VR. Now throw a pandemic in the mix and you have to battle perception of risk. And even though you have all the hygiene protocols in the world in place, you're still up against a very important and impossible to get around perception of risk, both on the patient side and the frontline clinician side, not to mention it took us a year to have the right frontline workflows in place to know who's our champion. You know, If anyone who's ever put a great device in the hands of healthcare professionals in a certain workflow that workflows everything and does it actually improve their lives? Is there task switching? Is there alarm fatigue? All that stuff matters. And we had figured it out and all of a sudden those personnel were not essential or just not in place. So what do you do? And so we decided to zoom out, meaning let's put VR as a critical tool in the platform that is Icona and let's build Icona to be the comprehensive learning platform for the patient population 
with specific tools dedicated to addressing certain barriers that patients face throughout that care journey in this disease state. So if we're talking about barriers to home dialysis, to going on home dialysis or becoming aware of home dialysis, that's a VR tool. If we're talking about being able to transition effectively and confidently into home, there's a healthy amount of home training involved, augmented reality, staying home, adherence, feeling confident enough, feeling like this is the right treatment for me. Again, these are different tool sets. So the zoom out happened with COVID, but it was very messy. You know, to be completely frank, it's not the panacea of, well, virtual care and virtual reality sounds like it would have been a boon. No, because it's completely overkill and missing the mark to use a VR headset for telehealth. It's actually a, probably a, an order of magnitude more complex than you need for simple telehealth interactions. But with that, Tim, and this is what I also want to talk about, kind of where you see things going and as a leader in this space, you guys have been after you and your colleagues for quite some time now, know where things are heading, what we should be mindful of. And so with that, Tim, let's build on that a little bit, given what I just kind of outlined as well. With a little bit of that zoom out, with a little bit of that pivot because of the pandemic, what is happening now in the future for Icona Health? What do you see happening to the product line? What do you see the industry going? What do we need to be mindful of? Maybe a little bit of future state as well. Where are things heading for us? Yeah. So the, where things are headed is very much in line with, and this is why I'm so optimistic about the future of kidney care, especially the inflows into kidney care and in particular population health management as early as stage three. We're talking everything from Cricket Health through Monograms, Virtual CKD Clinic, Strive Health, Somatis, you know, plenty of capital inflows. This is going to be incredible for patients in the sense that we need to be able to detect and manage kidney disease earlier. It's very well known and it's been very well discussed and it's top of mind for a lot of people in this space that so much attention has been paid to and focused on dialysis and kidney failure and everything that happens after patients crash into dialysis. Now that's changing and all of these companies are leading the way in how we provide better support earlier in the patient's journey. Now, if we look at our philosophy and mission as a company, we want to be the resource where we are able to provide personalized learning journeys or maps for every patient. So that means just like these companies are paying attention to what are a patient's goals and how do we support them and how do we bring these personnel and dedicated support teams to enable these discussions that slow the progression of the disease and reduce cost of care and improve patient outcomes. How do we do that as a company for patients on the individual level? So things like imagine a, a Duolingo model that meets immersive healthcare at the right moment at the right time. As a patient is being onboarded to have that early interaction intervention at stage three. And we can be the way that we measure how they're interacting with our services. We can anticipate when they might be forgetting certain information and use techniques from learning science, which are micro learning, space trainings, space retraining and testing, and storytelling, of course, to help engage those learners in ways that are far more captivating than traditional methods today, like PDFs or handouts, or even online videos and links. Now, there's already plenty of great outcomes from the ability to engage patients with the right resources at the right time, you know, reduce hospitalizations with Cricket Health and their fantastic work on that front. But there's more we can do when it comes to giving 
the best resources to patients at the right time. And we want to be that resource where we control everything about a patient's learning journey from day one. And we're the ones who are sharing those insights with the care team so they can see when a patient has an interest in a, a particular treatment option and when a patient wants to be followed up with and then what they've learned and how their knowledge is increasing over time, how their confidence might be increasing about their ability to manage their health or their anxiety scores are adjusting pre and post our lessons. Those are the types of interactions we want to iterate on and be kind of the smart learning platform that powers a lot of these earlier intervention services as we move from where we've currently been working in ESKD further upstream towards earlier stages of kidney disease. Well, as we continue as an industry and hopefully faster than we have been, because I want to see us get there, as we continue to migrate towards value-based care, I guarantee the kind of health story will continue to be heard loud and clear across the nation because exactly what you're doing is exactly where we need to be going. Get that education out there, get to that patient more upstream and be a part of that journey and helping empower them. I absolutely love where you're heading. I love the zoom out as well, Tim. Sometimes there's a silver lining in it that we don't see right at that exact time. I know the pandemic was tough for many of us, but it sounds like there was some huge opportunity for growth and refocus for the organization as well, which is so exciting. But with that, Tim, I'd also love to be able to extend a little bit of an olive branch on our end with our community. What is one problem needer question that you or your team have that our community that's rallied around this podcast can be helping you with? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I would say number one is people who are passionate about supporting chronic disease, self-management, healthy behavior skills. I know that there is an absolutely incredible community of those professionals across healthcare patient networks who are very, very passionate about that particular disease state supporting people who are experiencing those and the majority of Americans who are dealing with this on a daily basis, not to mention their families. We want to be able to do right, starting with kidney disease and people who are affected. And we want to make sure that what we are building and the ways that we're reaching patients are doing right by patients and their families. So if there are people out there who are passionate about, in particular, education as a means for improving self-management skills, especially through peer coaching. We would love to hear from them. And please, I'd love to have them reach out to us. Let's line them up, team up. I know they're out there, Tim. How do they get a hold of you? Where are some uh, contact points online, social media handles, websites, or otherwise? How can they get a hold of you? Two ways. I'd say LinkedIn and Twitter are both great ways and both handles are the same. That is at T.R. Fitzpatrick, both on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if they'd like to reach out to my email, it is tim at icona.health. Easy enough. And we'll have those contact points in the episode notes. So in your favorite podcast player, just simply scroll down and click on through to get a hold of Tim. Those will be listed in there. And of course, over on our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com, there will be a post for this episode as well, where you can leave some comments, feedback, suggestions, or otherwise for Tim and the team again, over at passionatepioneers.com. Well, Tim, we have one more section, one I love a lot on this podcast. It's a fill in the blank. It's why we're here. I'm a passionate pioneer because? I'm a passionate pioneer because learning is an experience and how people learn is one of the greatest unmet challenges in healthcare today. Ooh, man, that's good. Way to wrap us up. That's strong, Tim. Bravo to everything that you and the team are accomplishing. I've been following you and the Icona team for quite some time. I finally had the opportunity to 
get our schedules lined up to have you here on the podcast today. So I'm incredibly grateful. And again, I cannot wait to continue to follow the story and all the good work that you and the team are up to. But for now, Tim, thank you so much for taking a pit stop, joining us on the podcast today, sharing your story and your mission at hand with Icona Health. Again, thank you so much for being with us today, Tim. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.